before I introduce Bruce, I just want to say, think about, and, and I mentioned this in my talk yesterday, this time eight years ago up, at, um, up in Karanda, think about the world we were in, think about what you were doing, think about what you were wishing and, and hoping for, think about where you are now and where you weren't then and, and what's happened. And uh, I've just got a little bit of a retro perspective going on there. That was the T-shirt that I bought back then and I've still got it, which <laughs> I've still got it. <laughs> um, but but um, yeah, oh, there you go, Russ, yes. Um, but you think about, you, you know, I think about the world then and I think about what, what we bring together today and where will we be in four and then eight years. And I think about the disturbances that are going on in the world at the moment. And, and I named a couple of them yesterday. I named the, the, the rejection of our waste by China is one of the most massive and positive disturbances that we as environmental educators could ever receive. And we get it in one big chunk. But it poses many great challenges and vultures are circling. So that space is amazing and it's open. But another of the most amazing disturbances that I've had a privilege of being involved with personally has been the work of, of Bruce Pascoe. Um, when, you th when I think back to what was going on back in 2010, to the work that he's doing at the moment, and to the way that he's opening up an entire reinterpretation of history, is something that can shift and move our engagement with our immediate world the world we live in, the country we live in, the country we wake up and walk through every day. And the work that Bruce is doing is incredibly inspiring and he's delivering it in such a way that I'm seeing the impact that's that, that that's having, particularly by simply discussing one or two little points in audiences that know nothing about it. And when we talk about connection, the biggest asset we have is our ability to communicate. The theme for this year's convergence is connection. There was incredible connection yesterday, and to Katie and all the team, I know Katie's here somewhere, to get 4,000, oh, there she is, to get close to 4,000 people to come out on the shift of season, <laughs> the freezing ice box of a day, and to see so many young children and families there you know, here lies in our palm this opportunity to really connect with them and tell them the stories that each and every one of the people that spoke up just then are doing and each and every one of you, of you are doing. We're connecting with people in so many ways and if we see this as like a wonderful bringing together and mixing up of... Oh, I'm searching for analogy. I've gone, I've gone the dough. You know, here we are mixing it together and getting it right and then we go out there and bake these ideas and really put them out there. So, so be open, suck it in, suck it in for the next four days because I've, I think I've, I've had two dinners and one, or one dinner and a breakfast and a day yesterday and uh, my, my, um, my, my stick is starting to say full. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to get another drive. To put, to, put, to put in the information because this is the intro. So um, I'm not going to say anything else other than it gives me great pleasure and it, it really excites me that we can start this convergence with 
a presentation by someone who is making incredible shift and a shift that we can all take with us and a shift that I can't even begin to think what we'll be talking about in eight years time as a result of this gathering. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce our first keynote speaker for the Convergence, Bruce Pascoe. Uh, thanks, Costa, and um, uh, thanks, Wally, for uh, the, that introduction to country, uh, that special welcome. Um, we're all here about country, about looking after country. Wally said the Earth's our mother. Uh, we have to treat the Earth um, as if she were our, our mother and not continually take from her without giving back. I know that's what we're all about, but we do have to remember it um, every day. Um, I'm Bunurong, Panalapana, a Yuan man. Um, the Yuan lands uh, border these. This Yuan is south coast. Uh, but uh, Vicky Shugarugalu, who's here today, has, is working on a, a project out at Namaji National Park, right on those borderlands. And that country is still alive with spirit. And it, you can't walk anywhere on that land without being aware of it. And in fact, we should be aware of it every step we take anywhere in Australia. It might be masked by buildings, roads, and McDonald's restaurants, but uh, it's still there. And it, we have to respect it. We have to listen to those welcomes to country, not just as, as a form of speech, but as a genuine welcome to country and, and accepting the responsibility of looking after country. Um, I wrote a, a book called uh, Dark Emu in, and was published in uh, 2014. Um, I'd been uh, working on that for a number of years and talking to uh, groups like this around the country about the fact that there was an Aboriginal agriculture and I was amazed by the reception that information was getting. But the, the stunning thing about it was that that information was readily available. It was public information. And the fact that it didn't appear in our curriculum, the curriculum that we teach to our own children, is an indication of the great forgetting in Australia the great avoidance of anything to do with Aboriginal people. The refusal to accept anything that Aboriginal people had to offer. Because if you're going to take the land from people and you're a Christian country, you have to explain it to yourself. And the way this country did it was to say that Aboriginal people were inadequate. Aboriginal people weren't using the land. Yesterday we saw evidence, strong evidence, of Aboriginal land use and Aboriginal respect and love for country. It's vivid, it's alive and it's with us every day. And that's why when you get the privilege of being welcomed on the country that you accept it as that, as a privilege. I've just come back from Brawarana 
um, which I mention in Dark Emu because of the, those fish traps there, which are arguably the oldest human construction on Earth. The oldest human construction on Earth and visited by nobody. <coughs> Pardon me. In any other country that could accept and value its history, people would flock to Burwarana to stand in awe above the oldest human construction on earth. But we don't do that in this country because we cannot bear to look over our shoulder at what was done in the name of the pioneer spirit. When Sir Thomas Mitchell, the first European to ride through that country, the Mitchell grass, named after him of course, not the people who'd been harvesting it for 60,000 years, um, the Mitchell grass was above his saddle. Um, so this is a, a grass that is, is this high. It, it went for miles. He, in fact, was riding through Mitchell grass for days, but on one occasion he rode through stooped grain for nine, day, for, for nine miles. Stooped grain. Now, that's in his journal. That's a public document. Mitchell is revered as one of the great explorers in Australia, one of the great heroes. He was a, a poet. He was an artist. He was a, an incredibly good bushman. Um, he was a surveyor. He was the Renaissance man. He would have been terrific company. But when he rode through those lands, he was imagining them as being white lands, even though he and his fellows wrote down the words nine miles of stooped grain. It looked like an English field of harvest. Those words are in our history. They don't appear in our curriculum. And when you go, when you go to Burrawarrina today where all that hundreds of miles of this Mitchell grass, this great grain that our, our people were grinding into flour, the first people on earth to grind grain into flour, there's none of it there because we're growing cotton there now. And we are making huge dams. We are turning all our rivers into sand so that we can grow cotton up there. There's no Mitchell grass anymore. As I was returning on... Um, whenever it was, for, uh, Saturday, um, the air was thick with what looked like pollution, but it was in fact our soil because people were still ploughing that land so that they could grow cotton. They were releasing carbon with every turn of the discs. We, we cannot afford to do this in this country anymore. We have to learn to use... Um, our country well, to care for the soil, to care for the soil as if it was our mother. And if we refuse to do that, if we abrogate all the power to ourselves and continue to say, this country will bend to my will, then we will destroy it. We will destroy the world. And this culture here, this is the only culture in the world, you can argue about this with me later, the only culture in the world where for 120,000 years, maybe more, uh, people lived on the land 
all the people across that land believed the earth was their mother and that they could not go to war to take land from a neighbour. Land war was unknown. Aboriginal people are human. Wake up in the morning sometimes grumpy, grizzling about their neighbours, in a, a bit of a tease with their, their partner and their kids and their neighbours and their brothers and sisters because they're human. And so we'll fight. We'll belt each other um, in, in order to emphasise their displeasure. But these people, our people, never went to war for the land. And Australia has inherited that peace and is abusing the peace and abusing the land in the process. So that's the end of the misery. It's all up he uphill from here. Um, I'd like to show you a few pictures um, which emphasise the fact that Aboriginal people were conducting an agriculture here in sympathy with the land, not just in sympathy with the land, but in love with the land, in absolute love with the land, loving the land, not wanting to convert it into dollars. Um, Jonathan Jones, a Wiradjuri artist, um, was interested in the theory um, from Dark Emu that uh, Aboriginal people were involved in an agriculture, were in fact um, growing Murnong uh, over thousands and thousands of kilometres um, and weeding that Murnong, weeding a thousand kilometres of Murnong. That, um, that first field that Mitchell saw, once again it was Mitchell, uh, he called it Australia Felix because the best basalt soils in Australia, virtually treeless, read Bill Gamage's uh, The Biggest Estate on Earth, um, read um, the, um, uh, the Call of the Reed Warbler, Charles Massey, fantastic book, uh, read David Holmgren's new book. All of these books talk about these things. But that field of harvest um, was was immense and it required looking after, it required gardening, it required farming and um, Jonathan Jones, he's an artist but he was so concerned that Australia wasn't getting the message that he thought he would trawl through the museums of Australia and he came across this stone. It, this stone was amongst thousands of its kind, thousands of its kind in the Australian Museum, the Australia Museum in Canberra. It had never been displayed. And you can see that uh, near the top, it has been etched in there in order to seat um, a handle, to bind a handle to the stone. That handle was attached at right angles. The stone itself is that big. It's too heavy to use above your waist. So you have to attach a right-angled handle to it and use it as a pick. And that Bogan River stone, it came from the Bogan River near Brawarana, um, was actually the only stone in that um, parcel of stones that, that had a name and it was called Bogan River Pick. Now like the word stook, pick 
has a really specific agricultural meaning. And how can we, in this country, I said the misery was over, it's not quite over. Um, how can we in this country uh, allow a word like stook to not appear in a, Australian history? How can we afford not to tell our kids that Aboriginal people used picks to weed thousand kilometres of Murnau and to look after thousands of miles of Mitchell grass, thousands of miles of kangaroo grass, thousands of miles of panicum, which is blowing all over our roads at the moment. Panicum decompositum is seeding at the moment and it, it's just blowing up against our fences. No one uses it. Our people were converting that into flour 80,000, 90,000 years ago. The first people on earth to make flour. This is what our country can do. It has this ability to produce these things. And it might sound like an extraordinary idea, but when you arrive in a country, why not use its botany? Why not eat its botany? But our refusal, Australian refusal to accept Aboriginal history, refusal to look over the shoulder at what, what the past had to offer, means that we can't even eat the grasses that want to grow here. So we introduce other plants that don't want to grow here because they're homesick and we flog them with superphosphate and we um, spray them so they don't get rust and mould and wilt. They don't belong here. So why are we, re we refusing to use Australian plants? Anyway, young Jonathan Jones um, uncovered this stone, took the photograph, sent it to me, um, for which I was really grateful. No Australian textbook uh, should be printed in this country for the next hundred years at least without showing that stone. Because our children, when they're six and seven years old, should be told that Aboriginal people were not just beautiful, wise, spiritual people, were also farmers and looking after the land. And if you, as a young Australian, come into school on your first day, if you want to be a good Australian, you will love this land. Not treat it like an object, not treat it like a bank. Um, these were uh, breads, Aboriginal breads. Now I'd been chasing um, a bread that I'd been told was at Yarrabah Museum in Queensland um, and Tony Abbott cut the funding to Aboriginal um, groups across the nation. You know Tony Abbott, he was the man who wanted culture, Aboriginal affairs in his own portfolio because he loved Aboriginal people so much and uh, he wanted to be there with him. He went camping with them and, um, and he thought when he came home he thought the best thing I could do for Aboriginal people was cut all the funding. Um, and in the doing that, the museum at Yarraba closed down. All the, um, the artefacts were redistributed. And that bread that Judy Watson, another artist, there's a line running through this conversation, um, Judy Watson had told me that bread was there, it had gone missing. So I was in despair. I got a phone call from Melbourne Museum two years, uh, after two years of hunting down this artefact, this old bread, this old Aboriginal bread that had come out of an oven. Now, how do you find an Aboriginal bread? 
without the owner being there. You find that bread because the owner's dead or has run away from you. And so these breads were really important as part of our history. They're really important as, um, as telling us about our country, telling us about love of country. So I was really keen to find one. I got a, a call from Melbourne Museum. We've got a bread, we've got a bread. It's in the catalogue. It's here, Aboriginal bread. Come and have a look. But before I even got there, they opened the drawer that the catalogue said this bread was in and the drawer was empty. So I get a phone call, once again, totally deflated. And, uh, but a, about a month later, a young Aboriginal woman, Kimberly Moulton, um, sent me an email. Unc, I think we've got your bread. Um, and so I went along there um, with, another, with Vicky, another artist, and um, I, I d wasn't convinced I was going to see bread. I'd, I'd had enough by this stage, but they took me into a, a room. They showed me these loaves. The, the top one uh, fits absolutely neatly into that kulamon. It is made for the kulamon. A beautiful loaves of bread. Now look at that. Now, um, this one um, is made from Nadu. But look at it. You stick that on a shelf down at Brumby's um, or, or, you know, your boutique baker in Canberra where you pay five fifty for a cup of coffee um, and people would buy it. They'd say, oh, yeah, can I have that dark rye, please? It's a risen loaf of bread. Now, I don't, I don't, we may not have time to talk about rising agents, but that's a fascinating... Uh, subject uh, of its own but I was incredibly moved to see that then I saw these little fellas um, and these are made out of water lily seed these were, were found um, on the South Australian border made from water lily seeds this is in the dead heart of Australia the dead heart of Australia people were making boutique bread. <laughs> These are fabulous items. Once again they should appear in in our history books. We shouldn't allow our kids to think of their country as being um, the word is primitive. Australian Aboriginal people were leading the world in technology, in housing, in irrigation, in farming, in art, in canoe building and bread. I hope there are no French here. Um, um, Jonathan Jones once again um, was interested in in, in Dark Im, I'll talk about the, the seven uh, principles that um, Europeans believe represent civilization. There's things like agriculture, uh, there's things like spirituality, because we had none of that, Wally, none at all. Um, and pottery is one of the other markers of civilization. Of course, Aboriginal people were supposed to be ignorant of pottery. Uh, this pot um, is a coil pot uh, in the South Australian Museum. And this one is a moulded pot, also from the South Australian Museum. When I first got these photographs, I was travelling around Cooktown and I showed them uh, to Aboriginal people up there and they said, yeah, they're interesting pots. They're made differently to ours, our old pots. 
And I said, what do you mean? And they, they said, well, we, we made pottery too, our old people. When Captain Cook uh, was repairing the Endeavour at Cooktown, Banks was wandering around um, collecting pottery. And the, the style of the pottery was black and red. When it went back to England, um, the English newspaper says it compares favourably to modern English pottery. That's how good it was. It was glazed, black and red. How come this isn't in an Australian textbook? How do curriculum makers, when they're sitting down to make a book for children about Australian history, how can they possibly leave it out? What kind of bloody-mindedness, what kind of blindness means that you've got to leave that out? I said the misery was over, but I was lying. Um, uh, these are, I talked about Murnong before, that massive plantation of Murnong, a variety of this is found virtually everywhere. Uh, Vicky found the Alpine version here um, last year. I'd never seen it before. Um, this is Microceras lanceolata. Um, and you can see in um, the, the bottom section, the three, the three is a very really important number in Aboriginal life. And there's the, the three little tubers. Um, and there's a grandmother there, there's a mother and there's a child. Now the grandmother will wither away and die. The mother will take over her duties. The child will then take over her mother's duties. And you eat, um, you selectively crop that without destroying the plant. Once again, it's a perennial plant. These photographs of the Murnong uh, are the best I've got because so little is known about it. Uh, there are some people at Merry Creek Catchment Management Authority growing some. Very little is grown elsewhere, but it is so nutritious and so beautiful to eat that it will become a staple of Australian households like it has been a staple of Australian households for millennia. And you know, everyone's going to jump on this bandwagon. They all, everyone's going to want to be groovy and eat Murnong and have uh, wattle seed bread, uh, water lily seed bread and wattle seed bread. Everyone's going to want to do that. But I've been saying to people, begging people, you can't eat our food if you can't swallow our history. So there's an obligation. When... It's a bloody good line, isn't it? Um, I, I was happy when I made that one. Um, but it, it's true. You know, everyone's going to want to be the first. It's like all the condiments, like uh, bush tomato, uh, lemon myrtle and all that sort of stuff. Everyone wants to use it. But when you use it, mountain pepper, all those beautiful foods, when you use it, remember who domesticated it for you. Don't forget. And, and people say, yeah, yeah, we're always going to remember. Well, lest we forget. Because there was a war in this country. And we just cannot take those foods away without ensuring that Aboriginal people have got some land. You know what Aboriginal people are missing today? The land. It was taken away. So if you get enthusiastic about these foods, if you get enthusiastic about Murnong, 
for instance, and all it's, you know, seven times as nutritious as a potato. So it's only small, eh? But you don't have to eat as much to get the same nutrition. And eating less won't do us any harm. If you get enthusiastic about these things, you make sure that in your life you in insist that Aboriginal people get some land back so that our young people can grow these foods. Our young people can earn their living uh, growing traditional food and can you know, meet their girlfriend, their boyfriend, have children and grow them up on the back of the traditional foods like it was always done. You'll be able to do it too. Aboriginal people, I'm pretty sure, aren't going to insist on you not having these products. But we just want to be in there. We want a foot in the door of this country's economic life. Don't talk to us about closing gaps. Don't talk to us about sorry. There are really quite simple things that can be done to ensure that Aboriginal people um, are in the economic life blood of, a, of Australia. And they won't cost the country anything. In fact, these foods, because they're perennial, because they're sequestering carbon, they'll help us meet our carbon emission reduction targets. These things are going to be an economic boon for the country. And a rich country like this can surely remember the first peoples and that culture. Not, not a, it's not nothing to do about charity. It's about learning about the land and, and becoming Australians. Um, this is uh, the yam daisy that comes from this country here, um, from the high country here. I, I'd never seen it until um, last year. And um, it's a, a, a beautiful plant. And it, it grows in the, the high country around here. We thought, Beth got um, a university professor in Melbourne, wrote the only book, and has still written the only book on Murnong, on Yam Daisy. Um, and we thought there were only three varieties. Well, this plant proves that there are more than that. We still don't know how many there are. I got a letter the other day from someone in Queensland saying they've got a, a Murnong variety there. So like kangaroo grass and like panicum, there's probably a variety uh, in every state. These are my kids. And um, there's the harvester. You can see that it's a very modern machine, uh, high tech. That's a Honda motor on the top. Um, but that we conducted the first um, kangaroo grass harvest at Malakuta two years ago and I made sure my kids were there um, because I just thought it was an historic day. We were harvesting kangaroo grass for the purpose of turning that grain into flour for the first time 200 years, whatever it was. Whatever the, the last day, the last woman was able to harvest her grain without being shot at. The misery's not over, as you can see. Sorry. You, you can't talk about these things without getting passionate about it. I defy you to talk about them without being passionate. That was the bale of um, grain that we, we harvested on that first day. That is the first bale. And that's the loaf of bread. That's um, got 40% white wheat flour in it, simply because we couldn't um, get enough of 
our own flour. But this is what your kitchens will look like and they'll smell better than they do currently um, because the, when you cook with kangaroo grass flour and pannikin flour, your kitchen takes on a whole new character. And that's why Australians are going to want to use it because it's a beautiful flour. It comes from this country and it's going to help our environment. Thank you very much. Are you happy to take some questions? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was kind of uh, surprised then when I dragged that analogy of bread out <laughs> earlier. Because <laughs> it, uh, it did, uh, I, I think I just picked up on that in, in the moment. But, you know, the, the thing... The thing that strikes me when I'm listening to Bruce talk is, you know, we, we, get, we get fascinated when we hear about the, the pharaohs of Egypt and the discovery of something some years ago and the world stops and the books are written and so on. And, and here's Bruce talking about the oldest living structure in the world and it's out in the back blocks of a town that no one would even know is on the radar. Like, th this is really, really massive, massive information and massive game-changing information that Bruce has just shared with us. And I think you'll need, for those of you that have really just tapped in on it for the first time, until you hear Bruce delivering it. And as he said, you know, the... the um, that feeling and that pain is there but he still delivers and delivers through that to be able to touch us and then give us the chance to go forth and share this information so i just wanted to give you a second or two to to kind of take a breath but would anyone like to ask any questions at this point of bruce Oh, so many questions. So after reading this book, it was like waking up in the morning and reading a New York Times headline, Lost City of Atlantis Discovered in Australia. And Bruce's line that Australia has the greatest international um, export, intellectual export, we've worked out how to make peace more than before any other nation. That moved me so much and that's what permis are about. Um, this is... Three easy questions. Why is the book called Dark Emu? Can't find that anywhere online. Is there ever an unwelcome ceremony performed by people like Uncle? I run an Airbnb like many people now do. And it's amazing. People come to my house. They treat it with such respect. And when I go to their houses, I'm more respectful than my own house. I don't leave mess around because I want to get a good review or future Airbnb hosts won't host me. I guess there was a lot of unwelcome ceremonies that was part of the invisible fences that protected the land. If you don't behave yourself, you won't be invited to the next corroboree. I'd like to hear a bit more about how you had the reputation economy 40 th um, for all those years. That's what's protecting Airbnb and sharing houses. So, third question. You've given us so much work with this book. You've said, here's one example. Please go out there and find another hundred examples. Here's 
cultivating one crop, can someone please go out there and cultivate other crops? There's a lot in, about in, in the news about how robots are going to replace doctors, like don't study law, there's not going to be any jobs. And I know so many smart people are turning up at my house as woofers and they've got PhDs or they designed an app when they were 19. They don't need to work for the rest of their life. They're just looking for a mission. There's a lot of people like this. And you've given them a mission. Do you have some way of organising all the jobs to be done that I've seen in your book so that someone with massive intelligence and a lifetime of freedom ahead of them, because they have an Airbnb, can just say, all right, I'm going to work on this one. Mobilise us. <laughs> the book's called Dark Emu um, because the, the dark em the emu is a, is a plains bird and eats grain. Um, but also the emu is a creator spirit, um, can t take form different forms, but... The, um, the emu is one of the creative spirits, Biami, and Biami's footprints are all over the country. Uh, you'll see them um, almost everywhere uh, where Aboriginal people lived. But it's called dark emu because when Biami left the earth, and you can actually see places in Australia where um, the emu left the earth and went into the sky, and um, yet that emu's still there. And it's beautiful at the moment. The moon's down. Go outside tonight and have a look. Where Scorpio, you know, here we are in this wonderful cultural country talking about Greek mythology, you know, we continue to do it. But the only way I can point it out to you is say where Scorpio is, the dark emu is cutting right across it. And it's not a group of stars. It's not a, constel not a constellation. It's the absence of stars. It's a dark space. And... At the moment, uh, the, the head um, is right up high. You'll see the, the neck and then you'll see the, the body coming out and then the, the legs down. It, it's really, really vivid at the moment. Um, just keep looking. If you can't find it, just keep looking and looking and looking. Look for a dark space. Look for an elongated emu shape. And in, um, during egg-laying season, the dark emu's eggs will come up because it's the male that sits on the, on the nest to do those eggs. Um, in regard to me giving people jobs to do, um, you can start on my garden because I'm never home. Um, <laughs> but the, but the, the job to do is not to t talk to your fellows here, not to talk to people who are likely to know the answer anyway. Find your biggest redneck neighbour... The person you have most trouble with, speak to them about these things. Speak to them about love of the earth. You know, protect yourself. You'll get snubbed a few times, but you have to keep on doing it. We, we have to convince those people who are doing the damage to stop doing the damage or even reduce the damage that they're doing. Um, and everything is possible. Who would have thought 10 years ago that supermarkets would stop giving out plastic bags? Who would have thought against government policy that people would take up solar power in this country? It is the people who have done those things and they've done it without government support. The people can make the change. I'm, I'm convinced that is the only way we're going to do it.
if we have to allow politicians to think it was their idea in the end, it's a cheap price. Allow them to get on the hustings and talk about uh, looking after the land, loving the earth, or, and just go, oh, yeah, right, yeah. You know, that's their way of getting elected. Because the best thing to do with a politician is to actually ignore them and, and get on with the job ourselves and not, and not, be, not be doomsayers. We cannot give up. We have to go out into our own gardens and we, we know that the neighbour is spraying, you know, the lawn with, you know, weed killer. But don't let that defeat you. You know, talk to the neighbour about that in a way that is going to end up in a cup of tea, not a fight. Don't confront that neighbour um, with their use of poisons. Develop a relationship and work through it because if we get, become combative with each other, nothing gets done. The sides are entrenched, left and right, left and right, uh, become entrenched, we get nowhere. So um, that's a muddled answer to a long series of questions. Thank you so much. This is about technology. Um, the harvesting of the grain to bread, in between there's the grinding, the processing. What about those appropriate technologies that we use? Have you uncovered some of that? Well, the, um, the old um, technologies were very simple, obviously, the grinding stone. Um, but the, the, the sowing methods were pretty traditional um, and are still used in many countries in the world because it was a broadcast of, of seed. And you'll often see in Aboriginal dance a movement like this, and it's broadcasting seed. And you'll often see Aboriginal women with a little basket on their, on their hip that was full of seed, and that was used like this. So they're the old technologies. Where that um, machine I showed you before was made by an Aboriginal man out of an old shed. All the steel in that came from an old shed and that was a handmade machine to do, purpose built to harvest our grain. Because today, uh, the first time I harvested, I did it by hand. I filled two bales by hand. It took forever. Um, you know, we do use machinery these days and we will have to use machinery in the future. We're looking for a grinding technique now which is commercially viable um, because you know Australians aren't going to um, go home every night and grind it between two stones I don't think so anyway uh, although the, the little mill that I've got is two stones um, with a handle you know it's the same principle it's the same thing Charles Sturt this is one of the great Australian images once again appears in no Australian textbook unfortunately Charles Sturt was saved in the, the dead heart of Australia by people who were growing grain and they fed him with roast duck and cake. Um, the poor people, that's all they had to eat, roast duck and cake. Um, but they, they shared it with Charles Sturt and they shared the water with the horses, an animal they'd never seen. Such is the generosity of our people that they would walk up to a horse, a beast they'd never seen, but they recognised a, a fellow creature and they, they fed it water. But Charles Sturt, when he'd eaten his roast duck and his cake and 
the water and had lit the fire in the brand new house that they'd given him because they, were, they had a building estate there, you know. It must have been Jennings or someone like that. And um, they had three new houses and they offered him one and they gave him the kindling, they gave him the water. And he sat down in the front of that house and he watched as the evening settled and all the fires of all the other houses um, were lit and all he could hear were uh, dogs barking, children laughing and people singing. It must have been misery. Um, this was a happy community, a really civilised community and the background noise was as women ground grain into bread, into flour for that night's bread. Wow. Bruce, I'm really interested in the relationships between plants and people and I've heard that in Australia it's the only continent on the planet that without supplementing our diet from meat that we wouldn't have the nutritional variety to support ourselves on plants alone. Could you speak a little to that, please? Yeah, I will, and I'm totally ignorant. Um, um, look, um, and, and, and people are, are moved by this story, um, and so you should be. It's a story of our earth. This is not rocket science. This is not a gospel. This is just a story about our earth, and it's always been there. So, you know, be moved by it, but don't, don't think of it as, you know, a triumph. It's the story of our country, and it was always there. We've refused to learn about it. And so the fact that we're learning about it now, the fact that permaculture over the last 20 or 30 years has got some wheels and is gaining ground, this is only our respect for the earth. It's not a personal triumph. It's not our, you know, it's not our own enormous wit that has produced this. It is the earth. And if we move away from the earth, then we've moved away from our own soul. Um, as far as nutrition in this country, um, Aboriginal people at Cape Otway were roughly, on average, six foot two. Um, the Englishmen who came out here were five foot three. Um, and you can tell that by going up in the lighthouse now because it was built for a man who was five foot three inches tall. Aboriginal people towered over the uh, Europeans when they first arrived because Aboriginal people were healthier. Aboriginal teeth were better. Aboriginal strength was better. They talk about Aboriginal men running faster than the British could imagine. So they were fit. They were eating meat as well as they were eating vegetables. But 80% of the diet was vegetables and um, uh, there was some meat eaten. We passed a kangaroo this morning that had been killed in the last five minutes. I bet you that kangaroo's still there when I go back. That is protein lying on the ground that ought to be consumed. And we ought to find a way of consuming. Aboriginal people were selecting young male kangaroos um, to eat. Um, young males, uh, not females. You know, there was a protocol, there was a law about the consumption of meat. There was a protocol and law about the consumption of vegetables. You can't even walk up to a tree and tear a branch off, you know, to use for yourself. You have to ask the tree. You have to always ask the tree, the plant, may I take this branch? Because 
you know, in a very practical sense, all it does is give you pause. Because you walk up to the tree and you in the back of your mind saying, I have to ask the tree for permission. And it means you end up taking less. Because that's a living tree. And you look then you look at the tree and go, which leaf can you spare most? You know, you have to you talk to the uh, the tree like that. I don't know whether I've answered that question, but I enjoyed my own answer. <laughs> While I walk up to the back, I, I, you know, I, I considered your mob and us Greeks to be fairly similar. You know, you're talking about 80% greens, the Mediterranean diet. Yeah, I know we're a bit short, but we're still strong. Thank you, Bruce, for your talk this morning and your insights. Uh, my name's Oliver, and my question is probably a little bit drier than the other ones, and I'm just interested in uh, if this, um, the plant, the merwong that you talk about, had a natural distribution, how scalable or how suitable is it to use in regeneration of agricultural landscapes? How much can it actually be distributed around the country what is the viability and what is appropriate um, for using that as a crop that could become part of our regular Australian diet? And we're fast too. Uh, Australian women dropped the baton on Saturday, but a Greek and an Australian, we got there. What was the question? Oh, no. Um, look, it's, it, it's, it's plant for location. Um, I was over in WA uh, last year and the, um, the, the gardeners and the growers in the audience said, oh, where can we get Murnong from? Uh, can we get your Murnong? Send us some seeds. I said, you don't need my Murnong. You've got one in your own backyard. You've got your own tuber. Once again, um, Lieutenant Gray rode and walked th through the fact that he lost his horses is a an untold Australian story, l l Google it for yourself. But anyway, in the end he's walking uh, back to Perth and he walks through these fields that had been so deeply cultivated that he couldn't walk across them. He had to walk around them and he did this day after day after day. He couldn't walk in a straight line between uh, Broome and Perth because it was so deeply cultivated. No Australian textbook tells you about this, but the plant they were growing was um, a, a yam, Hastafolia. And it grows so deeply in the soil to protect itself from the heat of Western Australia um, that it's a metre and a half down. And, but the Aboriginal people were digging that field progressively. They worked a face. Um, it's a common... Uh, agricultural practice of Aboriginal people to work a face. So by the time they'd worked that face and got to the end of their field, it was time to turn around and come back the other way because by that stage it had grown again. And this um, beautiful yam uh, that was so intensively grown uh, is so prolific. You know, that's the, that's the food that should be eaten over there in Perth. And people from Western Australia should come over here and say, let's go out to a restaurant and eat Murnong because we're sick of yam, you know. It, it should be re it's, a regional, it's a regional food, a regional diet. 
So have a look around. Uh, yesterday we saw kangaroo grass uh, right up on the top of the hill. So in the old days, Damaging National Park must have had a really decent crop of kangaroo grass before the weeds got in. Well, I didn't talk much about Aboriginal housing, Aboriginal clothing and things like that because, um, you know, a lot of the myths about our people were that we were ignorant of clothing as well as ignorant of housing and it's not, not true. The evidence, if you look for it, is that Aboriginal people, where the, where the climate um, required it, built very warm houses. Um, once again, Mitchell rode through villages of a thousand people. Every house in the village was different. And um, Aboriginal people across the country had some form of clothing. Up north, where it's really hot, that was minimal. Um, down south was the possum skin cloak. But all sorts of furs were used, all sorts of uh, uh, grass skirts, grass shawls we use. We just don't know about it in this country. We, we like to think about Aboriginal people as being ignorant, you know, just beautiful spiritual savages wandering around. And that's what our history teaches us. It's wrong. Uh, the substantial housing and um, if you walk around in the bush you'll, you'll see it all the, all the time, the old foundations of these houses. They were routinely burnt, part of colonial practice. You find uh, the house of a person, which is an obvious sign of ownership, you burn it down. So that's why they're, they're missing out of our landscape today, apart from the foundation. But the thing is that in Australia, in the next few months, you'll learn about a village um, in far western New South Wales, near the South Australian border. It's a town that starts with a B. Um, that town is the oldest village on earth scientifically proven. I mean, here we are. We, we know how old our culture is, but we're waiting for white science to tap us on the head and say, oh, you spiritual, wise Aboriginal people, you've got the oldest village on earth, which means that Aboriginal people invented society. In the country with the oldest human construction on earth, we also invented society. And once again that does not appear in any Australian textbook. And it's going to take a lot of swallowing. What page of our newspaper uh, will that appear on? Right next to the sport and deaths column? Or is it going to be on the front page? Where will it appear on Channel 9 News? It won't. Thank, thank you. Um, Bruce, could you tell us about the major art projects you're involved with? Another Australian myth is that I'm an artist. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. Um, I, I work with a lot of people like Jonathan Jones, engaged in art projects. Uh, Vicky Shukaruglu is working on one at Namaji at the moment and we're also working on one at State Library of Victoria. Um, but I'm there under false pretenses. Um, I can barely draw. Um, but I... I make a good cup of tea, um, but you know, art, art and the garden go together, and um, so it's inevitable that the artist and the and the gardener eventually um, end up communicating. 
because we're talking about the spirit, not, not the bank account. Sorry, I didn't hear that. Oh, is that an arts project? Oh, yeah, I'm, in, I'm involved in that. Yeah. Um, yeah, I thought I was up there for the vegetables at Candos. Um, we're, we're bringing together, you know, uh, gardening, uh, health of the earth and, and arts. Yeah, I'd just forgotten I was doing that. Um, but, yeah, I am. I am. Yes, you're right. I'm an artist. I nodded to someone over here. Who are, oh, here. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, we have to talk to the Aboriginal people um, from that region. Like, you know, growing the food that is region-specific, we have to go to that region um, and talk to the people. And I work at University of Technology Sydney and we're in discussions with that community now because I believe um, that when that information does come out, no Australian will go there, but Italians, French, Germans, Americans, Chinese, they will flock to that town because people are really interested in the development of the human, the development of the human spirit and spirituality, and people will want to go to where it started. And they'll pay money to go there. So we're talking to that community saying, get ready, um, things are going to change, make sure your young people go to school, get training, not just as tour guides, but as managers, financial operators, Airbnb um, owners, um, but also make sure that that work is spread across the community and not you know, controlled just by one family. This is all going to happen in Burrawarana. Um, I've been working with that mob up there for a, a long time now, uh, learning more and more about their country and their culture. Um, and last weekend I was saying to them, I was at, th there's a Klontar Federation which educates young Aboriginal kids who have uh, got themselves into a bit of bother. It's run, it was started by Jared uh, Neesham who was a coach of uh, Fremantle at the time um, and he, he had a really close association with the Aboriginal footballers in his team and he took that from there um, to uh, establish this Klontar Foundation which looks after those kids who are so passionate about their sport but about nothing else. So he wanted those kids to play their sport, you know, play it at the highest level but also to learn and it with those Klontarf kids, I was saying, here's your opportunity. You know, you're not here for nothing now. You're, you've got this opportunity to go to school. You're 13, 14 years old. Um, you've got a 3.5% chance of being an AFL footballer. That broke their hearts. I said, but you've got a 97% chance um, of being a wealthy person, um, of being a very useful Aboriginal person in your town because you can get involved in... Uh, the tourism that is bound to come to Brewarrina. Once again, Australians won't won't be there, so you won't have to provide scones. It'll have to be sushi. Um, but the rest of the world will, will come to Brewarrina um, to look at the oldest human construction on Earth. Um, and uh, gradually, Australians may be educated about their 
their culture, their civilization. I really hope they do because this is a wonderful land. It's a wonderful place. We're all privileged to be here. And two great facts of Australian history, white fellas aren't going to leave Australia, neither are black fellas. The future will be what we make of those two facts. Costa's tired, he can't get over there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'd, I'd be happy to, I'll, I'll do as much as I can. Um, but we do have to look around a bit more broadly. Um, a, a version of Dark Enemy for 7 to 12 year olds will be out in schools soon. Um, and um, I am writing another book, it's a novel. And um, it's about the pre uh, predisposition of men to go to war. Uh, so it's a little pot boiler. Um, it'll be on all the airports. Um, I guess my question is about um, how you see Aboriginal agricultural knowledge fitting in with permaculture. Because I know when I st sort of started learning about permaculture, um, you know, one of the principles is observing the land. And I was like, how can you be in a permaculture movement without acknowledging the land and the culture um, that you're on? Um, and... And also, like, what, as permaculturalists, should we be focusing on in terms of ag agriculture? I mean, I'm Greek as well, and I was shocked when I found out that the tomato came from South America. I was like, oh, that's like a staple of my people. Like, um, so we've had, like, kind of uh, crops, you know, a global agriculture, you know, for a long time, like lots of seed exchange between communities. And, but I guess, um, you know, a lot of permaculture in Australia does plant European food. You know, so, so, you know, is there a way that permaculture can kind of support agricultural knowledge and, you know, does that play out in, you know, growing more crops, um, etc.? Well, you might be amazed to know that we invented permaculture too. Um, <laughs> the um, the Murnong fields around Colac, which were part of that uh, Murnong plantation from Williamstown to Adelaide, um, one of the farmers there, J. E. Lloyd, uh, really examined what Aboriginal people were doing and he wrote it down, for which we are grateful. Uh, but the, the Murnong there, what Mitchell saw is a single plant with yellow flowers growing across that very rich plain was in fact three or four plants. Bulbine lily is also a yellow flowering plant and grew side by side with Murnong with a different um, harvest season. Uh, moth orchid uh, with another a different harvesting season um, also has a yellow flower. So what he was seeing was a, a complex garden uh, with at least three tubers uh, growing in it. But they were all growing through moss. And the moss um, was sweetening the soil and keeping the moisture in the soil. This was a permaculture, a permanent culture of plants. And the thing was that the introduction of sheep, which were also released at Williamstown, and they just walked west. You didn't have to do anything. They were having two lambs a year because they were eating myrnong and they were eating orchid and they were eating bobon lily all the way. And so the, the shepherds just followed them. They didn't have to do anything because the sheep were too busy eating. They didn't run away. They had nowhere to go. They just ate their, their way across Victoria. But when they did that, they stamped on the moss with their hard hooves. 
and destroyed it. And within weeks, the Jews that had been ever-present are in that Colac region. And Jay Lloyd says, you couldn't get up in the morning and walk across the land without getting your socks wet, which is a terrible thing for an Englishman. Um, because the Jews were so intense. But after the sheep had been there for a few weeks, the Jews ceased. That incredible impact on climate of just one beast, the sheep. And I'm currently on a campaign to get rid of sheep in Australia. Wish me luck. I'll be, <laughs> I'll be murdered next week. Um, thank you so much, Bruce. I really enjoyed this talk. And it has been reminding me of so many things. Um, my question or maybe comment is the fact that uh, we place a lot of uh, our learnings, I think, in external factors. And we have forgotten that memory really lies deep within as a seed. Because for me, coming into this country uh, and being able to survive uh, the adversity that I have encountered was partly because of uh, going back to the memories of, um, you know, um, the oral culture and remembering the stories of not only my ancestry, but for the people that I, I, I was born in Somalia, but I lived in Kenya. And in Kenya, I lived with the native culture called Giriamas. So every time that I wrote uh, on my journal, I would remember the resilience of the women that I grew up among. And I think most of those, their stories really uh, came, in, came to help me. But I think the most important thing that we should advocate for uh, communities that come into this country is like young people now, in our culture, we are, po we, we are a culture of poetry and oral culture. Young children are starting to remember uh, the ancestry story. And I think that ancestry lives within us through the DNA, and we can impart things that have long been forgotten. So how do we go back into, uh, how do we remind the young people to go back into internally rather than looking external like fossils or keeping things, you know, um, side? Thank you. Well, I think it's marvelous that you, um, those, young people of your country are learning the old stories because those old stories come with a lot of authority. Um, they do in this country too. Uh, so we, we have to encourage the young to engage with their earth and engage with those old stories. But in terms of Aboriginal culture here, which is all about food and sharing, most of the uh, traditional stories you hear about our earth are about sharing, sharing food, sharing resources. Um, so, with that in mind, when everybody starts turning to Aboriginal culture, instead of going to Bali and uh, floating a lily on a pond to get their spiritual experience, uh, they, they stay in their own country and learn the stories of their own country. I hope that you just don't swamp Aboriginal people with your passion. Um, I, I have a, an auntie in Tasmania who for 40 years looked after a rock carving that she didn't understand. She hung on to that and hung on to that as the only person 
who knew where it was, she hung on and hung on until another person came along, recognised what that drawing was and was able to explain to her what she had been looking after. So that woman, as, as a custodian of that drawing, is now being threatened by being run over by tourists who will forget her devotion. So when you, when you accept a story, a cultural story, you also have to accept the culture and have to accept the custodians, like Wally said. Not owners, it's custodians. So don't trample the custodian like a sheep would trample moss. You know, respect the story, respect the custodian and make sure your children learn it, but make sure they learn their manners as well so that they are looking not just after, not harvesting story, but also uh, nurturing the storyteller, the story maker. It's going to be a difficult period in Australia because we are coming to terms with our country and our history and we are going to bump up against each other and bruise each other. It's not going to be all sweetness and light. It never is. There's a lot of hard work uh, for every gain that we make. Uh, we have to look after each other. We have to be really kind. And we have to teach our children kindness, uh, that kindness has a value, a greater value than anything else. Last question. David. Thanks for being able to have the last word, Costa. And thanks, Bruce, for every aspect of, of your talk today, including what you said that relates to the issues of cult, what might be called cultural appropriation and also about uh, the invention of permaculture because I wanted to acknowledge that one of the inspirations for permaculture was, of course, uh, indigenous land use and management. And because permaculture is a global concept, that was of indigenous peoples connected to place and land everywhere, but most strongly here. And I can remember discussing with Bill Mollison in 1974 the whole issues of Aboriginal management about the ideas or the, the recordings in Augustus Robinson's journeys down the west coast of Tasmania. And that was at a time when Bill had actually been just involved in the documentation of the family lineages of the Tasmanian Aboriginal people, which led actually to government recognition that Aboriginal people hadn't died out in Tasmania. And some of that was academic work, research work, um, a lot of it like your work with recorded journals and stuff, but a lot of it was of meeting the people, a lot of them not in Tasmania, and Kangaroo Island and other places. So that influence has always been really strong, even though we didn't know the information that has, has further come out. In terms of the practicalities of the rediscovery, can we say something by analogy about one of the passions in permaculture about the potential of tree crops and the huge nut-bearing trees and you know the, the great tree of this country still that is hardly used and eaten, the bunya, 
one of three massive nut-bearing areas of, the, of uh, Gondwana. But at the same time, permaculture uh, pointed out the huge potential of uh, the oak. The oak, there are 600 species in the world. The English brought it, but it was already a destroyed ancestral culture as wheat growers. We still don't have the selections, in spite of the vision of permaculture, of low tannin acorns. So many of us understand this possibility, and I think like the Mernyong, this is a, a long story of recovery, just to temper the idea that we're all going to suddenly be getting most of our tucker from <laughs> indigenous foods. This rediscovery process and working on this is a long, long journey, and I'd really like to thank you for this huge boost in uh, those, that rediscovery uh, that we are making through this new work. Uh, talking about the tree, um, very important uh, part of any agricultural enterprise. A gubbing is the, the new rage, the new superfood. Um, people are powdering it, they're putting it on cereal, they're putting it in milk drinks. Um, everyone wants gubbage. So um, non-Aboriginal farmers are taking that Aboriginal food crop and growing it as a plantation species and it dies because it needs other plants. Gubbage grows in a forest and you can't grow it successfully without it being in a forest. When um, people got all excited by uh, uh, the Tasmanian tree um, that seeps uh, honey uh, like a maple. Uh, everyone wanted to grow this tree and so some enterprising uh, farmer in Victoria started to grow uh, the um, Tasmanian cider gum in a plantation. Never got cider. Just got Tasmanian cider gums. Lots of them. No cider. So what had he done wrong? He'd taken the tree out of its environment. Um, tried to grow it as a, uh, as a single crop. And that, you know, that's what permaculture knows, that uh, plants like each other. The, and the, what capitalism likes is single production of a single item, either a crop or, a, or an object. Uh, they want everything to be done quickly and cheaply and look the same. And it, uh, the world doesn't operate like that. The world doesn't grow things like that. The world th grows things in communities. So you see a family of plants growing together because the family is healthy and productive. So I think um, we have to change our idea about farming, um, about growing single crops. And, you know, I, I used to li live on a, a dairy farm and I was a, uh, used to um, share the work of milking those poor old cows and um, we'd, we'd labour morning and night to milk those cows and the farmer would go down the supermarket and buy milk. I couldn't believe it. We have to be, become much more sensible about it. But, and grow these uh, trees and plants in their, in their situation. Recognise what the plant needs and try and 
make sure that that is provided, not taken away from it, not take that tree um, out of its environment. As for the bunya, this incredibly productive tree, not the only nut tree in Australia, uh, not the only fruit tree in Australia that is ignored, Illawarra plum, for instance, um, but we have to reintroduce these trees um, into, our, into our diet but also into our gardens um, and revere them uh, for what they are, cultural items. I'm just about done, mate. Yeah, no, well, that's it. That is it. <laughs> Bruce, thank you for setting our convergence off with such wit, with such humour, with the facts, with the emotion, and above all else, with the heart. I know that when you travel, travelling out of Malakuta is not just jumping on the train and, and being somewhere very quickly. So for the amount of work you do in travelling around the country and being available to events from schools, and I know you go to any community event of any scale up to something like this, and and your, your giving is, is above and beyond and the impact that you're having is fantastic and we couldn't have got a better keynote to, uh, to kick off our convergence for 2018. So thank you very much for telling it as it is. Thank you for rattling the cages. I know that everyone has felt a lot in this discussion and uh, it will sit with them and they will take it and do with it what they need to do with it.